Well, good evening, everyone. Oh, no. Is it going to... It's going to be popping all evening again. I got my backup mic here just in case. All right, well, let's start with prayer, and then we'll get started. Lord, you say that the person who is blessed is the person who delights in the law of the Lord and on that law meditates day and night. And so as we think this evening about your word and we think about what it means that your word is true and that it's consistent, it tells one story, we pray that you would help us to see how these things can impact the way that we study your word and the way that we understand who you are and what you've done for us and what you're doing for us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good evening. So the first thing that we're going to do tonight, well, actually we're going to do two this is, this is going to be one of, these, one of these deals again? All right, hopefully not, but uh, we'll, we'll see. I even walked around up here at the beginning before any of you guys came in when I turned it on. I put on my mic and I walked around. I walked back and forth to see whether or not I'd be able to use it, and it was fine. And now it's not fine. Okay, well, so uh, in a couple seconds... I'm going to have you guys talk at your tables about some of the work that you did uh, between uh, last week and this week. I know it was shorter. Uh, it, was, it was one week instead, so if you didn't finish it all, that's okay. Uh, if you didn't finish it at all uh, or do any of it because maybe, uh, perchance, you got married uh, instead, <laughs> like Diane and Bert did, uh, we'll give you a pass this time. But you're not getting married between this class and the next one. Okay, so there's no excuse then. Did you just compare me to a Catholic nun? All right, we might, we might be ending early tonight. I don't know how to recover. I don't know how to recover from that. Um... So in a couple minutes, we're going to talk about uh, the homework at your tables, and then we'll talk together as a big group. The one thing I want to start by saying is just kind of reiterating something that we talked about uh, last week. So if you were here last week, um, we remember we talked about studying the Bible in context. So we have to read what's going on around a passage in order to understand what it's actually saying, what it means. Uh, we can't just take isolated verses pull them out and say, well, this is what it means, or this is what it means to me. That's, that's not helpful, and that's actually not taking the Bible seriously. Um, so, but, but one of the things I want to be, be clear about is, uh, particularly when you can start learning this stuff, it can potentially lead to uh, maybe like a smugness, like, oh, I know what that verse means now. 
and all those fools don't know what it means. So now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell them about what it means, and, and I'm going to sound really smart because I know what it means and they don't. So um, let me just suggest that that's probably the, the wrong outcome uh, of learning to study the Bible more. If anything, our study of Scripture and our study of Scripture in context and understanding what God is saying as we study the Bible well shouldn't lead to us becoming more proud. It should lead to us becoming more humble because the Bible tells us the truth about ourselves. And the truth about ourselves isn't that great. At least the truth about me isn't that great. what the Bible says. So, something like Jeremiah 29.11 that we talked about last week, you could walk away from that thinking, oh, I'm going to go tell everybody I know now that uses that verse that they're wrong. Probably not the right application of what we learned. Um, it's really not our, our job to bludgeon people with the Bible, with our knowledge. And of course, if you read 1 Corinthians, Paul will say, uh, knowledge puffs up and love builds up. And if I know everything and I have not love, I'm nothing. Um, so that's, that's one thing is that when, as we learn this stuff, we also need to be learning with it humility. And that the Bible should should not exalt us or make us feel a lot prouder of ourselves. It should flatten us and make us think God is glorious. The other thing is to, to not simply, if, if you're thinking through some of these verses as you read them in context, is to not simply um, figure out what they don't mean and then convince yourself and everybody around you that they don't mean what you think it means or what they think it means. It's also to figure out what it does mean and to show how what it, what it does mean is actually better news, right? Because what God has said is always better than what we're going to make up, right? And so the example that I gave you last week of Jeremiah 29, 11, and I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. So we talked about that. We said that's not this direct promise from God to every person in the world or even every Christian in the world, that it was a specific promise given to a specific people at a specific time for a specific purpose, and that the promise of hope and future was not the kind of things that we normally think about. It's like, oh, well, then everything's going to turn out okay. I'm going to do well on my final. I'm going to get this house. I'm going to do this or that, which is the way that a lot of times people will kind of appropriate that. We saw later in Jeremiah, he uses the same words to talk about the children of the people in exile going back to the land. He said, there's hope for your future. Your children will go back to the land. And that's good news for a lot of reasons. It may not be the same reasons that we typically think it's good news. It's good news because God is faithful to his promises. If God's not faithful to his promises, how can I trust him? How can I trust him right now with what I'm going through? 
But if God has demonstrated himself to be faithful to his promises over and over again, and this is a wonderful example of that, even in the midst of something that seems like he's not, then I can trust him. And in addition, God had promised that a deliverer was going to come and that deliverer was going to be born in the city of David. And if the people were not in the land, if the people didn't go back to the land, then God would not come through on that promise and the deliverer would not come. He would not be born in the city of David. And he would not sit on David's throne. And so God's promise is, yes, I'm disciplining you now, but your children are going to go back to the land. And that shows you not only that I'm faithful, just in general, but I'm going to be faithful to this specific promise that I'm going to bring the Redeemer, and he's going to be born in the land, just like I said. Watch. And it happens. So, in the midst of learning to study the Bible and learning to study the Bible well, it can be easy to become proud and puffed up with knowledge. And I can say that because I've been there. And maybe I'm still there. Maybe you'll have to tell me. Um, But that's not what it should do. It should cause us to think less about ourselves and more about God and about God's Redeemer, Christ. Right? Now, that being said, I hope you don't feel scolded, by the way. That was not my intention. Um at all. Uh, But it's a reminder, and I I was reminded this week that that's something that we need to be very careful of. So, now we're going to keep learning how to study the Bible with that reminder. What I want you to do now is take about the next 15 or 20 minutes, and I'm giving myself leeway so that when I stop you, I don't have to apologize for lying to you right now. 15 or 20 minutes, and uh, I want you to talk about uh, the interpretive questions that you came up with for the text that we were, we were looking at last week, Philippians 1, 12 to 26. So did you come up with any questions? Um, that part is not even, I'm not even asking you to answer those questions right now. Just talk about what were the questions you came up with. Talk about why did you come up with those questions? Why, did those que- why might those questions help you interpret the, the text? Uh, if any of you want to share how you maybe came up with answers to those questions from the surrounding context, uh, you could share those. Uh, And then were there any questions that you asked that didn't end up having answers Uh, or you don't think they have answers or they didn't have answers in the immediate context, something like that. So as you guys talk about that, about 7.30-ish, We'll get back together, and uh, we'll talk. Okay, why don't we uh, wrap up our discussions. I'm trying to go wireless again. You are all sworn to secrecy. I'm using Pastor Tom's mic. 
So when he gets up here on Sunday and he complains about his mic being in the wrong position, you don't lie to him, but just don't say anything. Yeah, he'll figure it out. He's a big boy. And this, yeah, this nun came in and changed my mic. It's the weirdest thing. Okay, so, what kind of questions did you guys come up with? Also, uh, one other note, I noticed this. Um, the last two guys I've asked to, to run the mic are not here tonight. So, Mark, you want to run it? Also, I noticed the correlation between the fact that they're not here tonight and the fact that they didn't volunteer to run the mic. I, I told them they were going to. Yeah, Mark volunteered, so volunteered. hopefully he'll be back next week. <laughs> um, so what kind of questions do you guys come up I'm with? Throw it. So in verse 22, mm -hmm. we got hung up on Paul's choosing. Mm. Um, like, does he have a choice to live or not live, you know, sure. or to go home? Mm -hmm. Or is it his attitude he's choosing? Like, mm. you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. what is he choosing? Right. Yeah, that's a great question. I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. I'm not going to answer your questions, for <laughs> just so you know, uh, if that's what you're expecting. But that's a, that's a great question. That's exactly the kind of question we're looking for. It's like, okay, I came across something where it says, Paul says, I'm going to choose to die or live, well, is that really his choice? What, is that, what does that mean? So we jump ahead a couple weeks. That might be something potentially, and I don't know that this is the case, but we might potentially want to do a, a word study on choose, choice. What does that mean? Uh, is there, is it, does it have a different connotation in Greek than it does the way it's translated in English? It's possible. I don't know that that's the right answer. could be something totally different, but that's something that you might think of. So, oh, okay. Um, <clears throat> Paul claims he'll be delivered through the prayers of the Philippians and the spirit of Jesus Christ. Mm. Is, is there a relationship between these two forces? Could he be delivered by just one of these? What exactly is the spirit of Jesus Christ? Is yeah. it a power separate from Jesus Christ mm -hmm. or related to the Holy Spirit? Mm -hmm. There's five. That's, a, that's, how, yeah, how many, that's for one question please? Uh, that's, that's a great question. And actually, we're going we're gonna to talk about that later. It's funny you brought that up. I even took the slides for that part out of my presentation. But now that you brought it up, we're going to talk about it later. Good question, though. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Oh, my. Uh, where it says that um, Paul's saying that um, being in prison has helped to advance the gospel. Mm -hmm. um, so how does that do it? But more uh, specifically, how did it make um, the people bolder and more confident and to be without fear? Yeah. Since it, you might think it would do just the opposite. Yeah, right. Your, uh, your lead guy, uh, your star player gets put on injured reserve or is sent to prison, which would be this case. Uh, and uh, you think, oh, the whole team's going to fall apart now. Seems like it actually went on just as well. Why? How does that make sense? Yeah, that's good. 
Nate, you can't ask. You had seven already. You can't ask more. Okay. <laughs> In verse 126, Paul references a proud confidence. Assuming okay. this is not a sinful sort of pride, yep. you know, what are, what's the difference between sinful pride and the type of pride he's referencing? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. We just talked for 10 minutes at the beginning about how being proud is not a good thing. Here Paul's saying, I'm proud. Is he confessing there or what is he saying? Yeah. In verse 14, it says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So the question is, why would be being put in, in prison make them more confident? Mm-hmm. That would tend to kind of scare them, I would think. Right, yeah, very similar to the question that Cheryl was asking. Yeah. You know, how is being in prison? And, and how does that actually make them more bold? Yeah, right, so it's not just that they're not discouraged, and that they continue to be bold, which they already were, but that they're made more bold by his imprisonment. Yeah, it's a great observation, great question. Yeah, yeah John. Um, another question I had was, and again, I'm thinking like even in light of today's like preachers, quote unquote, um, in verse 17 and 18, Paul does not care about their motive for preaching the gospel mm-hmm. um, whether in pretense or in truth mm-hmm. so that that bothered me I guess <laughs> good if you read the Bible and it never bothers you you're not doing it right it should bother you so but that's a great um, that's a great question um, one thing that I'll say about that, because I can't resist, is uh, I remember wrestling through this at one point, thinking about the way that we react to different teachers who are very public figures and the kind of things they say. And, um, and so I remember sitting here thinking, is this, is this Paul saying, well, whatever, it's fine. Or is there something different going on? And it is interesting that he critiques specifically here the motives, but not the message. They're preaching Christ. They're just jerks about it. Right? And so it's like, well, it's not the way that I think it should be done, but they are preaching the gospel. And so I'm going to rejoice in that, not in their, not in their motives. What's interesting then later is in case you think that Paul is now soft on heresy because he's letting people with bad motives preach the gospel without any comment, at the beginning of chapter 3, he calls the people who are preaching a false gospel dogs. He says, watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evildoers. Their God is their belly. Their end is destruction. So Paul's not soft on heresy. He's big on grace, 
as long as that grace is accompanied, or as long as, as the, the, the false motives or the poor motives of people preaching are accompanied by a true gospel. Well, I think so, and I think so because he, he talks about them proclaiming Christ, and then at the end in verse 18, he says, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. So I think those kind of words he doesn't use when somebody's preaching a false gospel. Yeah, that would be, yeah, that would, yeah. It's a, he wouldn't, the, the people who are preaching a false gospel, he wouldn't say they're preaching Christ. He, he might say they're preaching a different Christ like he does in Second Corinthians, um, but uh, he would, I don't think he would say it like this. So that's just off the top of my head. So one other question that I want to ask you is, don't go too far, <laughs> is did you learn anything about the process of studying a passage of Scripture as you came up with these questions? And if you did, what? So this is not just a yes or no question. Yeah, did you learn anything uh, about studying a passage of Scripture just in general as you formulated these questions? the process of actually having to come up with the questions, did it teach you anything? Okay. For me, it was um, much easier to just assume I understand and then actually figure out a question. Yeah. It's easier to assume you understand something than to ask a question about it and maybe find that you don't actually understand it and then you gotta go find the answer. Makes more work for yourself. Yeah, Nate. Uh, a few weeks ago, as you know, Josh and I were memorized this chapter. <laughs> yeah. Just did did you did you actually memorize like a the month chapter? Ago. Yeah, we did. So okay. I realized in this exercise, I learned more about hmm. the scripture in 15 minutes than I did memorizing the entire chapter. Interesting. Yeah. Um, Ironically, we're going to talk about scripture memory tonight a little bit. So it is a practice I commend. Uh, but if it's done without thinking through what you're memorizing, actually sitting down and taking the text and, and squeezing it for information, it's going to do more. Yeah. I think for me it um, made it even more alive. Like you start mm. thinking about the, what are these people really like, mm, and sure. you know, it's just um, I think helpful in that sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Did it? Uh, did it have the effect? of showing you how much you don't know? <laughs> and I mean, to, to go off of what Alexander was saying, it's, it's much easier just to read it and to come up with what you think it means than it is to take the time, as we've been doing, to 
make observations, to try to put all those things together, to get a feel for the whole flow of the book and how the book fits together and reading in context and then asking these questions about specific things and trying to come up with answers and, and do, the, do the hard work of doing that. There's um, John Piper uses, and, and I think it's probably in this book somewhere, uh, this uh, workbook somewhere, he talks about um, it's reading the Bible can either be like raking leaves or digging a gold mine or digging, digging a mine. It says if you rake, you might get leaves or you'll get leaves, but if you dig, you might find a diamond. Digging's a lot harder, but it's infinitely more worth your time and investment, right? And so doing hard work like asking questions like this and maybe coming up with stuff that makes you feel like there's a lot about this passage that I don't understand. It can be a really good thing. One, I, I think it helps to point you in the right direction of where you need to, to be focusing your efforts in terms of how you're studying it and things. It forces you to get into the Word and start trying to answer those questions from the Word. Uh, and it reminds you that you're not God. And so you don't know everything. And it ought to remind you, I think, because you and I are doing the same thing. It ought to remind you that I'm not God and I don't know everything. And neither does Tom, and neither does Bob, and neither does Austin, and neither does Jeremy, and neither does John MacArthur. The Word of God is inexhaustibly rich, and you'll get lost in it for the rest of your life, and that is a blessing. That His ways are beyond our ways, and that there's always something more we can learn in the Word. Yeah, Bob. I found myself getting a little frustrated. Mm -hmm. You start asking questions, then you really want to go find the answers. Yeah. And so now, if I, I'm looking at my Bible, and of course, I pull up the study part of it, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm not supposed to be doing that. Yeah, you're but, cheating. But, but you, you, you find some of the answers there. But yeah. originally, I guess, I guess my frustration comes, and I almost need to have an exhaustible library to, to look up to what the Greek was, words were. Sure. Yeah. So I can understand what it was meant back then, what it was yeah. what they were trying to tell us. Yeah. So and so we're going to talk about word studies and stuff like that, and we're going to talk about translations in a couple weeks. So we'll get into some of that stuff. Um, what I don't want you uh, ever to walk away from as we're studying is to think that if you don't know Greek or Hebrew, you can't study the Bible. I don't think that's true. Um, and I think there are tons of resources that you can have access to. And there are even some really good free resources that you have access to that can help you understand things. Um, so I'd say most of the time, the translation that you have or comparing multiple translations are going to give you a pretty accurate sense of what the, the Greek word would mean or something like that. Um, there are, and this is towards the very end of our class, we're going to talk about resources that might be worthwhile for you to, to pick up. Um, somebody, I think 
I heard this week, I was listening to something and they, and they said, um, when you decide to commit yourself to something, um, you oftentimes need to buy the right kind of tools to do the job, right? So, uh, you know, when I became a homeowner, there's a bunch of tools I didn't have because I had a landlord. She was Pam's dad, her father-in-law. Um, and uh, so I didn't have to do anything. It was great. It was spectacular. Then I bought a house. Things changed. And suddenly I had to fix everything. So I had to invest in some tools so that I could start to figure out how to fix things. Um, so the same thing when you're studying the Bible. Uh, if you want to do it well, you can do it well. There's nothing, there's nothing innate about you that, that means you can't do it well, but you're going to do it better if you have good tools. So we're going to talk about the kind of good tools that you can use. And I mean, if you go on, our, on the website after every class, I'm posting the notes and I'm posting the audio, and I'm also posting a bunch of extra resources. So books or videos or things like that to point you to, to say, hey, if you want to think more about this, here's something for you to get. Here's something for you to look at. I'm also trying to, as we go and as I'm recommending books, I'm trying to buy those books to make sure we have them downstairs in the library. So especially for reference books uh, that maybe you are going to be less likely to buy because they're big, thick, hardback, $50 books or whatever, I want to have those here so that if you need to use it, you can come and and look at it. Okay, yeah, Kevin. And then we got to move on. John, it's more of a question. As, as we dig deeper into his word, mm-hmm. how careful or should we be <laughs> when we start to utilize those tools, the concordance. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you what, it's an exercise for me because those things are heavy. Yeah. But to pull them <laughs> off the shelf, to yeah. try to, and I think in my own sinful mm-hmm. mind, yeah. to figure it out yeah. and look at all resources. Are we to be careful or leery of, of about using utilizing those additional resources? I suppose it would depend on what you mean by careful or leery. Um, if you mean... Um, Let's not jump to it too quickly, uh, and we'll, let's try to figure it out on our own first. I'd say that's usually a good policy, um, to do as much as you can without utilizing these secondary resources, just you and the Bible. But there's a reason that we do recommend at a point in the process of studying the Bible that you do consult other resources, particularly other people who have studied this and what the church has believed about this through the history of the church. Because oftentimes throughout history, when you take a person in a Bible and you lock them away in a room for, for a year and they study the Bible just on their own with nobody else giving them input on that, well, no, we've studied that before and this is what... Th- that's how cults start. Right? When, when, when there's no uh, guardrails that are, that are put out there by the history of the church and stuff like that, yeah. Yeah, so we have to talk. So Carol said sola scriptura, by scripture alone, which is one of the tenets of the Reformation. So 
we'd have to talk about what sola scriptura means and what it meant to the reformers, which is more than just, so, sorry, sola scriptura is a Latin phrase, so now you can feel smart. Um, <laughs> means scripture alone. Right? So there were these five sola phrases that they, they actually didn't use them in the Reformation. They developed them afterwards uh, to describe what happened during the Reformation, this period of renewal of the gospel in the church. And one of the, the things that guys like Luther and Calvin and, and uh, other people uh, would talk about is that uh, the Bible alone is the highest authority that we have. Um, and so we don't, um, we don't bow to other authorities in matters of doctrine and practice. It's just the Bible. The Bible gets to set the agenda of what we believe. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no other authority that we listen to. It means that there's no authority that can trump the Bible. That's a much bigger discussion. So, um, okay. Oh, I didn't finish answering your question. Do we need to be leery? Depending on the type of resource that you're using, Yes, sometimes. Um, one resource that I would, generally speaking, uh, steer you away from when you're studying the Bible is Google. <laughs> I would also steer you away from YouTube. You will find more craziness on the internet than anywhere in the history of the world, all times that have preceded us put together times a million. There is so much junk on the internet, and I just mean about the Bible. Uh, that's not a place I would recommend going. So if you have a question about the Bible, I wouldn't go to Google and type in your question. I don't think that's going to help. There are lots of good websites on the internet that I could point you to that might help, but don't just go randomly looking for something that usually doesn't end well. Um, so I will talk to you in subsequent weeks about good resources, and maybe things to avoid, um, or people to avoid. Yeah. Does that answer your question, Kevin? Is that... Yes. Yeah, yeah, and so then part of becoming a discerning student of the Bible is to learn what sources are reliable, generally speaking, what sources maybe we wouldn't say are reliable, with the understanding that there's no source that's infallible but the Bible, right? So we can't, um, we can't get frustrated when we pick up something and we still don't agree with everything in it, um, you know, like a, a theology textbook or a book about studying the Bible or things like that. And even things that are in this, this workbook that as we go, I'm just like, oh, I don't know that I would say it that way or I'm not sure about that. Not big things. 
Um, but things that I'm like, hmm, I don't know if I totally agree with that. Uh, if I'm waiting for the resource, the, the uh, non-biblical resource that's going to give me all the right answers and I never have to question it or read it with discernment, then I'm going to be waiting until Jesus comes back and then some. Because that doesn't exist, right? So anytime you're reading something written uh, by a human being that's not in the Bible, hear me when I say that, you always have to use discernment and say, now does that actually fit with what Scripture says? Okay. We're going to move on. Is this thing going to work for me now? What does that? Turn it around? I don't, yeah, I don't think so. All right, well, uh, give me a second while I switch these out. I just can't get any of this stuff right, can I? Here, I'll go on this way. Oh, there we go. It just needed to wake up or something. Okay. So we've been talking about, remember, principles for interpretation. That is kind of the big picture. What we, uh, how we think about interpreting the Bible. So we read it historically. It meant, uh, it, it means uh, what it means to the original audience. Uh, the Bible was written to certain people in certain places at certain times, uh, and so we have to interpret it with that in mind. Contextual interpretation, uh, we talked about last week, reading the Bible with a view to what's around it, what the Bible itself is actually saying, uh, and then we're going to talk about the last one of those tonight, but before we do that, we're going to talk about another strategy for studying the text, which is checking cross-references. Uh, so, Cross-reference, if you have a, a Bible, some of your Bibles will have um, next to the, the words of Scripture, they'll have really tiny little numbers or letters. Now, the ones that come at the beginning uh, are, and are a little bit bigger, maybe are verse numbers, um, but little letters or little numbers at the end of words or things like that uh, may be cross-references. Oftentimes, I think they're letters. Uh, and... The cross-references are something that, if you uh, have your Bible, the editor who put together that edition of the Bible, not the, not the translation, but actually formatting what it's going to look like on the page, and if it's a study Bible where they're going to put the study notes, stuff like that, they, they put these cross-references in as a way of aiding your Bible reading. Um, so cross-referencing... Uh, means you are uh, using other passages to help interpret and make sure that uh, what you think this one passage means fits with the rest of Scripture. Um, we, if we believe that God uh, is the author of Scripture, and that God doesn't lie, and that He didn't... Uh, 
make any mistakes or forget or forgot what he wrote in Genesis when he was writing Revelation. He's writing Revelation. He's like, oh, wait, is that consistent with what I, I got to go back and check, right? If we believe God is, is all-knowing and is eternal we, and, and has inspired the entirety of the Bible, then we're going to believe that the Bible tells the truth all the time in a way that never contradicts itself, which means we can use Scripture to help us understand Scripture. Um, like I say here, cross-referencing assumes that the Bible is one cohesive and consistent story. In a sense, cross-referencing is just an extension of what we talked about last week, reading in context. So if reading in context, when we started talking about, you've got to look what's immediately around the the verse or the, or the passage that you're interpreting. And then what's a little bit further out? We talked about the kind of the concentric circles, although it was boxes on the thing, but you know what I mean. Uh, concentric circles of context and, and reading kind of from the inside out. Well, the further you get out, that's now you're starting to do more cross-referencing. We did a little bit of it last week as we started looking at some other passages that might have helped explain what we were looking at that were not just in the immediate you know, paragraph or chapter that uh, the, the passages we were studying were in. Um, and it's important to know as we talk about cross-referencing uh, that we're not just taking the passage that, that they give us, that the editors or the translators or whoever are giving us and saying, hey, this would be good for you to look at. We're not just taking that, taking that out of its context and pasting it under the context that we're looking at and saying, oh, now we know what it means, right? Because that can, that can be unhelpful. So we want to look at the, the verses that they're referencing. We want to go and we want to look at the context of those verses. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be doing an all-out study of those verses, but you at least want to, to read around it so that you know what the author's talking about and maybe have an indication of what's going on. So we're going to talk a little bit tonight about doing cross-referencing and how, how that can be helpful as you interpret different parts of Scripture. Um, important to remember that not all cross-references are created equal. Important to remember they're not inspired. So if you don't check the cross-reference, that's okay. Um, you're, you're, uh, you're not going to be struck down or anything like that. But they can be really helpful, particularly because there are a number of places where Scripture specifically alludes to other parts of Scripture and does so on purpose. Um, and so there, the most obvious example of this, I think, would be places where the New Testament quotes the Old Testament. Right? There are a number of places in the Gospels and in Acts and the Epistles where the New Testament quotes the Old Testament. If you read the book of Revelation, which I know all of you are super eager to do in your devotions, uh, the book of Revelation is filled with allusions to the Old Testament. That's allusion, A-L-L-U-S-I-O-N, not illusion like a ghost or something like that. Allusion, like an echo or a reverberation of something from the Old Testament. So even if it doesn't quote it word for word, the, the way that, that John writes Revelation, it's, it's packed with all these Old Testament references. 
Uh, and so if you want to understand Revelation, you've got to go and you've got to look how John is using the Old Testament to describe what's going to happen at the end. So, but not all cross-references are created equal. So sometimes there's going to be cross-references that are really significant, like maybe they're going to point you to where the, the quotation comes from. So if you're reading in your Bible, particularly if you, if you have a New American Standard Bible, they make it easy in the New Testament. All the Old Testament quotations are in small caps. That's what that means if you see that. There's some other Bibles that put them in bold or put them in italics or something like that. So you can easily identify where there's an Old Testament quotation. Um, Cross-references a lot of times will point you exactly where that is in the Old Testament. Um, but sometimes, at least I find, they're not quite as helpful. You, you go and you, you look at it and you're like, I think the, literally the only similarity between these two verses is that they use the same word, but they're really not even talking about the same thing. So this isn't particularly helpful. Now maybe I just have, I, I'm not astute enough to get what, what they're trying to get at. But um, as you check the cross-references, it's okay to come to something and be like, I don't know that that's particularly helpful. So, but there are some that are going to be really helpful. Uh, and like I said, cross-references aren't inspired. They're just suggestions. Uh, and basically, from Bible to Bible, um, if you have a reference Bible, which is, that's what the Bible with cross-references, um, the references are probably going to be different from Bible to Bible because there's different people putting them together. A lot of them might be the same, but there's going to be differences. And there's going to be ones that I even, as I was looking at uh, a text that I'm going to use for you guys in a second to show you how to do this, there were a couple that I was like, I can't believe they didn't reference this. I mean, this is, this is a really important one. So um, that's one that the more you study scripture and read scripture and get to know it and get to know where things are and memorize it and things like that, the better you get to know the Bible, the more you'll be able to do your own cross-referencing. It's like, oh, I've heard that before. Where, and then you go find it. So Mike had a question. Uh, yeah, that's probably helpful. Mike said, we're, we're assuming that uh, as we do this, you're staying in the same translation. So yeah, if you're using the New American Standard Bible or the English Standard Version or something like that, uh, or really any version, and you come to a cross-reference, it could be that they're referencing uh, the way that something is put particularly in that translation. So it's probably going to make more sense if you do it in the same translation. But all of these translators and editors are working with the same Greek and Hebrew manuscripts when they translate the Bible. And so they could be referencing something that for whatever reason they've chose to translate differently, but it actually reflects the same, the same word. So that's keeping the King James out of the equation. That's, we're going to get there in a couple of weeks. Don't jump ahead. We're, we're going to talk about translations and in, in a couple of weeks, so, but yeah. Um, so, and we're going to talk about the benefit of reading multiple translations uh, as well, but um, generally, yeah, I would 
stick with one translation, if for no other reason than just your own sanity when you're doing this. <laughs> um, so there are four types of, four big types of cross-references. So when you see the little numbers, um, and I know some of you may not have reference Bibles, so you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm, I'm going to show you an example of what it, it might look like. And if, if you don't, and somebody at your table does, you can ask to see it. Um, there's basically four types of, of cross-references or ways that, that the editors will, will put this together and reference these verses. So one is uh, quotations or explicit connections to something uh, in, in another part of the Bible. Uh, it's especially found in the New Testament, quoting the Old Testament. So sometimes you'll have a little cross-reference and it'll tell you, well, this was uh, you know, this in uh, Matthew, uh, maybe it was in Matthew 22, where Jesus is talking to the, um, oh, I don't recall if it's the Pharisees or the Sadducees, I think it's the Pharisees, and, they, and he says, um, isn't the Messiah David's son? Well, then how can he be David's Lord, because it's written, and then he quotes a passage of scripture, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make an un- your enemies a footstool for your feet. And if you look in the cross-reference, you'll see that pointed back to, I think it's Psalm 110. So Jesus is quoting the Psalms to make his point. Um, second one, places where there's a key word or phrase used. Uh, so sometimes the, the words or the phrases that the authors of Scripture use, they're not just making this up as they go along. Um, they're drawing on other parts of Scripture. And so um, I'll give you an example. Uh, in Exodus 34, uh, Moses is on Mount Sinai, and he asks God to show him uh, his glory. And, and God says, okay. And he puts him in the cleft of the rock. right? And then he says, I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you. And, and as God comes and goes before him, basically tells Moses, you can't see my face, but I'll let you see my back. Um, and he goes by and he declares his name. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. So he's describing his character. If you go into other places in the Old Testament, um, you see those terms pop up a lot. And they pop up a lot together. Right? So in Jonah, after Jonah has run away, and then and that didn't go well, and then he's finally, okay, I'll go to Nineveh and I'll preach to these terrible people in Nineveh and tell them to repent and that judgment is coming, because now that actually sounds pretty fun to tell them that judgment's coming. So he preaches, and what happens? They repent, and God forgives them, like he does. In the beginning of Jonah 4, Jonah, who's had this, created this massive revival in Nineveh, which any preacher would be ecstatic to be a part of, is pouting on the hill outside Nineveh, and God's like, Jonah, what's the deal? And Jonah says, I knew that you were a God that was gracious and compassionate, 
and abounding in steadfast love. I knew you would forgive these people. So Jonah is, is basically quoting Exodus 34 back to God. Now, that still doesn't really go well for Jonah. Um, but it's an example that, that there are places where, where the Bible will use these key words and phrases and it will draw your mind back to other times and other books in the Bible and, and the contexts in which those occur and things like that. So that's, it's really fun to, when you see connections like that because that's not an explicit quotation. Jonah doesn't say, God, as it is written that you said to Moses and then quotes it exactly and kind of paraphrases it back to him. But he's using these same words. So sometimes the cross-references are going to point you to, to a place where, where a significant word or a key phrase is used, and that might help you understand it better. Other places, the same theme is referred to. And so even if maybe they're not using the exact same words or phrases, it's talking about generally the same thing, or at least the editor is suggesting, hey, you might want to check this out. This kind of this whole passage might help you understand more what's going on here. Uh, and then number four, places where there's a less direct reference um, to another place in, in Scripture. Um, that's kind of the, the catch-all, right? The potpourri category. Um, and uh, oftentimes, at least in the, I know in the English Standard Version, they put those um, in brackets to show you that, hey, you may want to check this out. This isn't quite as direct. It may not be as helpful, but this, you might want to just go look at it. Um, Part of your homework is going to be to try to go through a passage of Scripture and look up the cross-references and, and categorize them and then try to figure out why, what they might tell you about, about the passage. What I do want to tell you is um, you don't need to memorize these or anything like this. This is just kind of for your benefit, say, give you kind of a map of here are the basic types of cross-references that are out there so that uh, when you look at a cross-reference and you go to that place and the first thing you think is, this doesn't sound anything like the passage. You know that there's a bunch of different stuff they could be doing. So to keep that in mind. But whenever, when you do it, you don't have to, uh, when you're studying the Bible normally, you don't have to sit down and say, okay, this was number one uh, in the cross-reference list. So you don't need to do that. Just try to keep that in mind uh, as you go. So we are going to look at Romans 8.3, the little CSB behind it means Christian Standard Bible. That's the translation uh, that this is. I'm, uh, I'm a practitioner of what I say, and I think it's a good idea to read multiple translations. So here's a different translation. Um, Romans 8.3 says, what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as a sin offering. So if you see up here on the, on the screen, and I think this, is, this will be, well, actually, you know what? This is a perfect opportunity for you to pull out this wonderful little sheet that I gave you. It says using cross-references because Romans 8.3 is right here on the front page. If you didn't get one, they're on the table uh, in back, along with some other things that I will talk to you about in a little bit. So, 
I went, I went to the, the Christian Standard Bible and I basically copy and pasted this in here and I used their cross-references. So these are the cross-references that the editors and the translators of the Christian Standard Bible uh, put in here. I compared them to some of the other ones in the other Bibles that I have. They're basically uh, the same. There's some differences, but... Um, so the little, uh, the little letters after dew and flesh and uh, flesh again and offering, that points you over to the, to the other column. So a lot of times in reference Bibles, they'll be in, the, in between the columns, or if you have a single column Bible, they'll be on the margin, or sometimes they'll be at the very bottom. And it points you to the different... Uh, verses that they say, hey, you should look this up. This might help you understand understand this passage better. Um, because of space, they don't usually put the whole title of the book, so they have abbreviations for the book. And uh, if you're not familiar with those, they'll probably have a list in the table of contents. They'll have you know, where the book is, and then they'll give an abbreviation for it. So obviously X is X. Uh, H-E-B is Hebrews, R-O-M is Romans, Phil is Philippians, uh, L-E-V is Leviticus, and uh, I-S-A is Isaiah. So, what I did for you on this sheet was I broke down Romans 8.3 into pieces and uh, separated those pieces by where they had the cross-references and then I put the verses that they're referencing down the side uh, just so that we wouldn't spend time flipping all over the Bible trying to find these things. Um, one of the really nice things now that you can do with cross-referencing is uh, you can go to a place like BibleGateway.com and you can just type in the reference and hit find and it'll take you right to the verse. You don't need to be flipping through here, going back and forth, trying to find it. That being said, I think flipping through back and forth trying to find it is really valuable. So, I suppose if you're pressed for time, you can use something like Bible Gateway. And I think, I think that's a great resource and, and you should definitely use it and there are wonderful things that you can do with it. But I don't know if you can replace the value of getting to know your way around your Bible. Uh, and so, particularly as you're starting off, it might be a good idea to do some of the hard work of trying to figure out where things are in the Bible, rather than relying on uh, a website to take you right there. You always have that as a, as a fallback. You're like, I really have no idea where this is. Also, it's never wrong to use the table of contents. You, you're allowed to. It's in there for, for a reason. You don't need to be embarrassed to do that. Um, so, the first thing that I did was just to kind of give you an example of kind of where we might be in the process of interpreting a text. So, say I'm studying Romans and I come to Romans 8, and I come to Romans 8, 3, and I just kind of tried to think through what are some questions I might have about this text that I want to try to answer. So the text says, what the law could not do. So my question is, well, what, what is that? What is what? 
What can't the law do? What does it mean that the law was weakened by the flesh? What does it mean that the Son was in the likeness of sinful flesh? Does that mean that Jesus was sinful? What does it mean that the Son was a a sin offering? Now, some translations here say that the the Son uh, was sin, or or, uh, I'll say for sin. I think this is the right translation um, because, quick story, in Hebrew, the, uh, the offering that people would give to make atonement for their sins, they just called the hatat offering, the sin. They just called it the sin. So they didn't have this other word that they, they, they tacked on the end. It just was called the sin. So for Paul to say he was given as sin, means he was given as a sin offering. So, the first thing that we come to is, Paul says, what the law could not do, or what could the law not do? Well, the first cross-reference he gives us is Acts 13.39. Now, on, on your sheet, on page 1, I gave you both verses 38 and 39. This would be, I can't fit the whole context of every verse on the slide, so even though I told you to look at the context, don't, you know, don't send me any emails about how that wasn't on there. Um, Acts 13, the, the big context is Paul and Barnabas are preaching. They're on their first missionary journey. They're preaching in one of these cities. And they say, therefore, let it be known to you, brothers and sisters, that through this man, that is Jesus, forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. Everyone who believes is justified through him from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. Do you, do you see the, the connection that why they might be pointing us to this verse? What could the law not do? Yeah, so here we have Paul, because Paul's the one preaching, Paul and Barnabas are preaching, saying that the law couldn't justify us. The law couldn't put us in right standing with God. That everyone who believes in Christ is justified from everything that you could not be justified through by the law. But Hebrews 10, 1 and 2. I could only fit Hebrews 10, 1 on here. But. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers purified once and for all would no longer have any consciousness of sin? So what can't the law do? It can't perfect the worshipers? So the law can't justify. The law can't perfect worshipers. I thought it was interesting 
that um, the cross-references that they had here didn't reference Romans 3.20, which is earlier in the book. So Paul's already talked some about this. So this is another place that we'd want to go. We say, well, what has Paul already said about this subject earlier in this book, if anything? Paul says in Romans 3.20, I, don't, I didn't put this on the screen, by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so again, you have Paul saying, the law can't justify. The law can't save us from condemnation, which would be the opposite of justification. When you go into a courtroom, you emerge either justified or condemned, guilty or acquitted. The law condemns us. It can't justify us. Well, why couldn't the law justify us? According to Romans 8.3. What's it say? It was weakened by the flesh. What does that mean? Let's check Romans 7.18. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with, is with me, but there is no ability to do it. How might that help us understand what it means to be, for the law to be weakened by the flesh? Yeah, the flesh couldn't do it. So now there's all sorts of debate about what exactly Paul's talking about in Romans 7. So that's a much bigger issue. But here they're pointing us to another place where where Paul talks about something that the flesh couldn't do, that the flesh prevented from doing. He says that there's nothing good in my flesh. And even though I might have the desire to do what is right, I can't. Because of my flesh, I can't. Do that. Actually, later in Romans 8, Paul will say, those in the flesh cannot please God. Uh, Hebrews 7, 18 and 19. Interestingly, the book of Hebrews, and you see it referenced uh, or at, uh, on your sheet, it's referenced a number of times in this section. The book of Hebrews is Uh, deals a lot with how Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. So Hebrews 7, 18 and 19. So the previous command is annulled because it was weak and unprofitable for the law perfected nothing. But a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. What does that tell us about what it means that the law is weakened by the flesh? Yeah, Brent.
Mm-hmm. Well, sure. Yeah, so remember, these aren't inspired, so it's okay to question them. Um, so Brant was saying, it seems like in Romans 8.3, uh, the point that Paul's making is that the law was weak. But in Romans 7.18, the point is that I am weak or that the, the flesh is weak. Um, so this would be a place where you need, to, you need to think through, well, did they get it right? Or am I missing something? Again, and this is, this is not the only tool that we're going to use to interpret something like, what does it mean that the, the law was weakened by the flesh? We need to use the other tools in our toolkit. But this is one thing that we could do, say, okay, here's another place where it talks about the flesh, how the flesh responds to, to sin and to the law and things like that. And this, this passage, he's talking about the law, and he says, the law is good and righteous and holy. So there's nothing wrong with the law. Problems with you. Or me, in the case of Paul, talking about himself. Right, the law, the law didn't have power to save. Um, it couldn't create new hearts and things like that. So there's, this is a much bigger issue than just being able to say, oh, there it is. So when you're doing cross-referencing, you're not necessarily going to find the cross-reference and be like, boom, there's the answer. Like it's this, uh, this game that the Bible plays where it's like, we're going to ask a question in one part, we're going to give the answer in another part, and it's up to you to find out. It's like a game show. It's not what it is. Um, so, but this is going to make you think, okay, so what's the relationship there? What's the relationship between the law and the flesh and things like that? So you're going you're gonna to be thinking through things like that. Uh, for the sake of time, I'm going to skip here. Uh, he condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. So these cross-references are going to try to help us answer the question, what does it mean that God sent the son in the likeness of sinful flesh? So Philippians 2, 7 Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. So there's kind of your link right there as it talks about Jesus taking on the likeness of humanity. When he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So there the might be pointing us to, here's another place where it talks about Jesus coming in the likeness of humanity. Now, what does question be? What does likeness mean? Does that just mean he appeared to be a man only? He looked like a man, but he wasn't. I would say no for lots of reasons. Um, is there something else in the verse that might point us to the fact that that's that's not what he means? Yeah. Right afterwards, it says. And he came as a man. And so, these terms are probably parallel. The idea of coming in the likeness of humanity and coming as a man are probably intended to mean the same thing. It's parallelism, which I think is a chapter that you have read or maybe will read in the book. I don't remember. 
Again, we're back in Hebrews. The author says, now the children have to have flesh and blood in common. Jesus also shared in these, shared in flesh and blood, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. So we learn about what it means to come in the likeness of, of sinful flesh there. Wasn't a rhetorical question. Yeah, okay, so he had flesh and blood. Right? He's really a man. He's had to be like them. He had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way. Every way? Okay. Next cross-reference. Later in Hebrews. Just in case we, we were going to get it wrong and think that that meant that Jesus was sinful. The author says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in every way as we have yet without sin. So again, it's an advertisement for reading the Bible in context. If you only read Hebrews 2.17, you might walk away thinking, well, it says he's like us in every way. That must mean he's sinned. So, well, but two chapters later, the author says, no, that's not the case. Right? Scripture interprets Scripture. We're not going to interpret it in a way that contradicts. last, Leviticus, the next book that you guys are going to read in your devotions after Revelation. What does it mean that it came as a sin offering? I already kind of gave you the, uh, the short version of this. On your sheet, I included verse 1. When someone sins in any of these ways, if he has seen heard or known about something he has witnessed and did not respond to the public call to testify, he will bear his iniquities. This is in the middle of all these elaborate laws that God is giving the people of Israel. It says if somebody sins, he'll bear his iniquity. There's a penalty. And he must bring his penalty for guilt for the sin he has committed to the Lord. And it tells him exactly what it is. A female lamb or a goat from the flock as a sin offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement on his behalf for his sin. And then it goes on to say, and if he can't afford that, he can do this instead. And if he can't afford that, he can do this instead. And so forth. But if you sin, you have to bring a sin offering to the priest to make atonement because you're guilty before God and the penalty for sin is death. And so something has to die. It's either you or a substitute that God accepts on your behalf. So God's saying, here's my mercy. You deserve to die, but I'm not going to kill you. You can choose to do this my way. You can choose to have the animal die instead of you. Hopefully that's somewhat obvious how that might instruct us what it means that the son was a sin offering. 
son was sacrificed as a substitute to make atonement for the sins. I skipped uh, Leviticus 14.31. It's basically saying the same thing. Isaiah 53.10 and 11. If the Lord was pleased to crush him severely, when you make him a guilt offering, so this is a little bit different. Actually, the word is different. This is a place where it's like, well, the theme is kind of the same. So there's all these different types of offerings that they offered in Israel. And if you read Leviticus in your devotions, you'll find that out. And uh, there's different offerings for, for different things. And here in Isaiah 53, it's talking about this servant of the Lord who is, who is going to be exalted and glorified, but is going to do so in the most odd way by suffering and dying and then living again. And so, it says, the Lord was pleased to crush him, his servant, severely. And when you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed and prolong his days. And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will carry their iniquities. And that goes into verse 11. So here's another place that that the editors are pointing us, saying, here's, here's a place where they're talking about someone being offered as a, as a type of offering, the kind of the offering that they gave in, in temple worship, an offering for sin, an offering for guilt, and there's differences between those. So, but, some of you may know, is Isaiah 53 important? I mean, the whole Bible's important, so don't, you know, don't get me wrong on that. Say again? That was a trick question, yeah. Isaiah 53 is important. In, in fact, in the, in, especially in the early church, it's one of the most important Old Testament texts. In Acts 8, when the Ethiopian eunuch was on his chariot riding and Philip was standing nearby and he was reading, it says he was reading the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, uh, the, the eunuch was, and he came to the place and quotes, I believe it's Isaiah 53, 8. And Philip came up to him and said, what are you reading? Or do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how am I going to understand unless somebody tells me? He hadn't uh, been to mining God's word, apparently, to study the Bible. So he asked Philip, and it says that Beginning with that text, Isaiah 53, Philip preached Jesus to him. Yeah, it's important. Philip got to the gospel from Isaiah 53, which if you read Isaiah 53, it's not real tough, um, but it's really important. It's a good chapter to spend a lot of time in. So, this is what I came up with just as some provisional answers just from doing the cross-referencing to my questions. The law couldn't justify, it couldn't rescue us from condemnation because we could not obey it from the heart, which I think was the point of Romans 7. We can be outwardly conforming to the law, but we can't be inwardly conforming, and 
God is not really concerned with our outward conformity if there's no inward conformity. So God did what the law could never do. And he did this by sending his son as a man to be a sin offering in our place. So he condemned our sin, which apparently is so bad I wrote it twice, in the physical body of Jesus on the cross. Now, if you, if you zoom out and you look at the rest of um, Romans 8, particularly starting in Romans 8.1, Romans 8.1 is one of the most glorious verses in all of Scripture. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. If you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. No condemnation. How does that work? Well, Paul goes on to explain. He says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was in the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh. And so Romans 8.3 is really an explanation of how is it that there really can be no condemnation for those in Christ. Because if you're in Christ, the sentence of condemnation has already fallen. Yeah, we're not going to have time for this. Uh, what I wanted to show you, I'm going to show you real quick, is that, and this, you can do this at home for fun if you want, um, it was ambitious for me to think we might be doing it in class. Uh, what I want to show you is, uh, this is a place where there's uh, a, an explicit quotation from the Old Testament. So, um, verse 18, where the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. You see the, the little B next to you. You go over to the side, 1 Timothy 5.18. First, they reference 1 Corinthians 9.9. 9. If you go to 1 Corinthians 9.9, 9, you find that Paul quotes the same text there. Say, hey, here's a couple places where Paul says the exact same thing. Quotes the same text. And he says it's cited from Deuteronomy 25.4. If you look up Deuteronomy 25.4, it says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. So that points you back to this law in the Old Testament. Now, uh, in one of the other uh, cross-references, when you go to, to 1 Corinthians 9, Paul explains more of what he means there. He quotes it and he says, now, was God concerned about the oxen? Was that the point of the law? Like, yeah, that was the law. But was that the point or was the point the principle of the laborer deserves his wages that should have been extended all across society from the ox to everybody else? Right? So, Paul quotes both here. You should not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And then uh, the laborer deserves his wages, and you see the little C. Now you have, at the end of those cross-references, you have the brackets, so that's where they're saying, go check these out. They're not exact parallels, um, but they may be helpful in getting you to, to understand kind of what's going on. Uh, but then it's Matthew 10.10 10 and Luke 10.7. Now, 
What's interesting here is that Paul says the, the Scripture says, and he cites Deuteronomy, which nobody's going to fight with him about that, right? Deuteronomy, this is like, not only is it Scripture, it's in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, which like that's, for the Jews, that's like the top of the list. Like this is the Samarit, for the Samaritans, and this is a whole different discussion. That's the only Scripture. So nobody's going to fight him on the Scripture says that. Yep, you're right, Paul. It says that. But then he says, and the laborer deserves his wages. If you go into the Old Testament, it's not there. You know who says it? Jesus. In 1 Timothy, Paul quotes Jesus and specifically is quoting something directly from the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke saying it's Scripture. That's significant for the way that we understand how even the early church thought about the Bible. For Paul, even at this point, the words of Jesus as they're recorded in the Gospels, he considers to be Scripture just like Deuteronomy. It's important. And you learned it because you did a cross-reference. Congratulations. It's possible. Yeah, we don't have firm dates. So even if it wasn't written in the exact form that we have it, there was probably a collection of the things that Jesus said that was circulated. I put it up there. Cool. Cross-referencing resources. Uh, reference Bibles, study Bibles will have uh, reference notes. So if you don't have uh, a Bible like that, I would get one. Or um, you can go online, Bible Gateway. has all these cross-references, so you can do it there. Um, you can get a concordance. A concordance is a big, thick book with really small type, just the kind I like. Um, basically, is a, it takes the words in the Bible and it organizes them by word and shows you all the passages where certain words show up. Um, and uh, if you pair that with a what's called an expository dictionary, you can look up and see when they use this word, there's a the little code number next to it, and you can look it up in the dictionary, and it'll tell you what the Greek word is or what the Hebrew word is and what that word what that word means. Um, we're going to talk about that in, I think, two, two sessions when we talk about word studies. We'll talk about using that kind of stuff. But concordances can help as it'll help you at least point you to places where the same words are used. Uh, and sometimes where there's very significant words like justification, things like that, it's good to have an idea of where those words are used. Uh, also, a book called The Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. Uh, this is a really pretty old book, but it's a good thing the Bible hasn't changed in a long time. Um, so this one still works. It's $13 on Amazon. You could buy that. Uh, this is not a big, thick, expensive one with tiny type. Um, this is one that basically just takes, takes the whole Bible, and it just, it's just a book of cross-references. So again, some are better than others, but it's helpful, and, and it's, more, it's a bit more exhaustive 
than what you're going to find in, in your Bible. So that's a, a good one to, to pick up. Uh, okay. So, Nate mentioned before he learned more in 15 minutes of asking questions about a text than he did memorizing the whole of Philippians. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but um, I think Bible memorization is, is really good, and I know you're not saying that, so don't. We're cool. But um, I was going to play uh, uh, an interview uh, that John Piper did, a brief interview that John Piper did about um, the importance of Bible memory and techniques for doing it and things like that. And I was like, this is great. It's so short. Well, not for tonight, it's not. So I'm going to post those on the website so you can have access to those. I'll put, them, I'll put the links in the email that I'll send out tomorrow when I post the audio so you can listen uh, to those. Um, but think talking about cross-referencing naturally leads into talking uh, about Bible memorization because the more of the Bible that you become familiar with and that you internalize, the more quickly and naturally you'll be able to do your own cross-referencing. So the more you get to know Scripture, the more as you're reading, you'll be able to say, yeah, I, I know where it talks about that. I've read that before. Um, so... I gave you two handouts because we're not going to spend a ton of time uh, on this. This is more of just kind of a freebie. Um, one, one says chapter five, Memorize the Mind of God, is a chapter from a book called Habits of Grace, which is a book I would recommend to begin with. Um, this chapter in particular is uh, about uh, memorizing scripture, why memorizing scripture is important, just, and it gives you some... Uh, some verses to start with uh, at the end if you've never done it before. Um, gives you some advice for that. The other one is uh, from a book about studying the Bible, and it's just something that the, the guy, the author, whose name is Andy Nacelli, put together. Uh, it's especially about memorizing an entire New Testament book, which might seem a bit daunting. Um, so, uh, but I think reading through some of the things that he, he says while he's talking specifically about memorizing a whole book probably will be helpful, just the idea of memorizing Scripture, period. Um, like I said, I'll post those other things from, from John Piper on the website uh, as well. Um, part of your homework this week, and I'm not just making this up, this is in your workbook, so you know, don't shoot the messenger, uh, was uh, to memorize a verse of Philippians. So you have, you have two weeks to memorize one verse. I think you guys can do it. Um, please don't pick verse one. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, right? Don't, I mean, you can do that one if, if you want. I would tack on a couple other ones after that if you're going to do that. So um, we also... Uh, I, you, well, you all already have a verse memorized. You just don't know you have it memorized. John eleven thirty five says, Jesus wept. <laughs> the end. There you go. See, scripture memory is easy. Um, 
but there, there's lots of benefits to it. It does take work and discipline, but one of the things I think you'll find as you uh, try to commit yourself to, to doing more scripture memory and being intentional about it, not just kind of stumbling into it, is it forces you, if your goal is not just to, to get it down so you can memorize it and pass the, the test, right? This is an Awanas, so we're not giving out any prizes if you memorize the, a certain number of scriptures. Um, but if you slow down and you, and you memorize a text and then you're, you are just constantly bringing it to mind, thinking about it all the time, slowly, you may end up noticing things about it as you go through it word by word that you didn't notice before. Uh, and so it can really help your observation, helps you meditate on the word, even when you don't have your Bible right in front of you, if you spend 10 minutes trying to memorize a passage in the morning as you're reading your Bible, and then you're trying to recall it as you go throughout your day, then you're like the, the blessed man of Psalm 1 who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. Like a, tr- a tree that is planted by streams of water, bears fruit in season, and all that he does, he prospers. So, memorize a verse from Philippians 1. Uh, if you're ambitious, try to do Philippians 1, 9 to 11. We've already been studying it for a while, so you, you might have a, a grasp of it already. And it's a prayer. Memorize that and then use that to, to form the way that you pray. You may find that you end up praying for different things than you usually pray for. So what happens is we look at at Scripture, we let Scripture form our prayer lives, we find that the more we conform our prayers to Scripture, the more we pray about things that God cares about and not things that are selfish or things that we think we need, uh, right? So in James 4, um, James says, you, you do not have because you do not ask, and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own desires. So how do we ask rightly? We ask according to the will of God. We ask according to to what Scripture says. Okay. In eight minutes, we're going to do canonical interpretation. Now, the reason why I'm confident that we can do that in eight minutes is because it wasn't going to be that long to begin with. This is an extended preview for something that we're going to do in the fall. So, canonical interpretation is just a, is the, basically the same thing that we say when we say correlation. Remember, so observation, interpretation, correlation, application, these four stages of studying the Bible. Correlation means we want to see how, ever, how what, we're, what we're studying, the passage, the book that we're studying fits within the entire framework of the, of the story of the Bible. So they call it canonical interpretation. The reason they call it that is because they're referencing the canon. That's a canon with one N, not two N's. Two N's would be like a, a howitzer. Uh, with one N, it means a rule or standard. We use it to mean the books that are in the Bible. So canonical interpretation just means how does it fit 
with the rest of the canon? How does it fit with the rest of the Bible? The storyline of the rest of the Bible. So here's the way that they described it. Canonical interpretation deliberately attempts to understand the parts of the Bible in light of the whole. It assumes that the whole Bible presents a coherent and integrated unity and that scripture does not contradict but rather complements itself. Canonical interpretation or correlation therefore mandates that our inductive study of the Bible remain aware of a passage's canonical context as we, it should be interpret, not interrupt. It also implies the need for checking our interpretation of individual passages against what scripture teaches in other places. So sometimes we'll say the Bible is a library of 66 books, which is true, but it's 66 books that tell one story. So uh, we can't compare it to walking into the public library and just picking out 66 random books and thinking they're going to interpret one another and they're all going to fit together in a nice sequence and everything's going to cohere. That's not the case. The Bible's one story. And in order to, for us to understand uh, and, and help us interpret Scripture, we need to have a basic understanding of that storyline and the stages that it goes through and so forth. So here's my very quick storyline of the Bible. Everything starts really good in Genesis 1 and 2. It goes bad real quick. The fall in Genesis 3, people sin and are separated from God. And then Genesis 4 to the end of Malachi. So the rest of the whole Old Testament is this this preparation and promise that God is going to redeem his rebellious people. He's going to to bring someone to deliver them and he is going to renew all things for his glory. But it ends in Malachi and nothing happens. And there's 400, I didn't put it here, but there's 400 years where there's nothing between the end of Malachi and when Jesus is born. So the Gospels tell the story of how redemption and this Redeemer is provided. The Redeemer that God had promised throughout the Old Testament and that everything in the Old Testament is pointing to comes. And he dies and rises. And then afterwards he says that his apostles are going to be his witnesses and they're going to proclaim the forgiveness of sins in his name starting in Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth. And that's really what the New Testament is about. It's about the proclamation of the redemption that was won by Christ and is now applied to his people. So that's Acts to Revelation and then Revelation 20 to 22, the very end of the story, everything's good again. Jesus comes, there's a new creation, sin and death are no more and the people of God live with God in his renewed world under his reign forever. So to to understand the Bible well, we need to understand where we are on the storyline. You are here, in case you didn't know. Um, And you need to understand where the text you're studying is on the storyline because where you are and where the text is may affect the way that you read it and understand it. It's going to mean the same thing, but but the way that you understand it and appropriate it and apply it is going to be different. And so you'll read this week about the Bible, uh, I think the, the storyline tool, the Bible timeline tool is what it's called. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. How come we don't follow the laws that are in Leviticus? 
Right? You probably already do some of this kind of canonical interpretation already. You don't even realize it when you realize, well, but that was in the Old Testament. That's the Old Covenant. There's something new. There's a new covenant. We're in the new covenant. We're not in the, in the Old Covenant, so we don't do that. So that's, that's canonical interpretation. That's interpreting Scripture, thinking about where does it actually occur in the storyline of the Bible. Uh, I'll let you read this on your own time. Um, part of this is remembering that the Bible is not primarily about you, it's primarily about Jesus. And so part of correlation and canonical interpretation is learning how to ask the question, what does this text have to do with Christ? Um, I'm gonna, I'll post some more stuff about this, but Jesus himself says this in Luke 24. comes to the disciples and he says, uh, this is what was written, that the Messiah was going to suffer and die and on the third day he was going to rise again. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. He said, all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the Psalms and the prophets must be fulfilled. And then he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. And Jesus does this a couple times in Luke 24, who basically says, the Old Testament, this is, this is pointing to me. He says it in John 5 as well, when, uh, and, and John, I think John 8 or John 10, when he's talking to the Pharisees, and the, he's telling the Pharisees, you guys love Moses, but if you loved Moses, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because Moses wrote about me to the same thing of Abraham. He said, Abraham longed to see my day. He's going back and he's saying, all of this before, this was about me. And it comes together in the Gospels. And the New Testament is written by the apostles who Jesus says are witnesses of these things. And so the whole New Testament is pointing back to what's happened in, in Christ or else forward to what's going to happen in the future when Christ returns. So the whole Bible is about Jesus. Now, you may be saying, John, it's 9 o'clock. How are we supposed to understand what to do with that? I'm glad you asked. Not only am I going to put lots of fun stuff for you to read in your spare time on the website, uh, we're going to have an entire class about the storyline of the Bible and how it all fits together and points to Christ in the fall. So that's the follow-up to this class. It's called, so this is Minding God's Word. The next one's called Tracing God's Ways. How do we understand the unfolding story of the Bible in a way that helps us see how it points and culminates and climaxes in Christ? And so um, that's why I'm shirking you right now with this and not giving you uh, sufficient instruction because I don't want to steal my material from the fall. Also, I haven't written it yet. <laughs> Bunch of uh, cool resources that will kind of give you an idea of what we're talking about when we say the whole Bible points to Christ and is this one unfolding story. I'm dead serious when I say the big picture story Bible is awesome and you should buy it. It's great. Uh, and it will really help you understand how the pieces of the Bible story fits together. We read it with our kids. And so I hope that my kids are getting to know how, not just the the stories of the Bible, but how, how the Bible has a big picture story that makes all the pieces fit together. So, um, 
This list is from easiest to hardest, so don't start at the bottom, start at the top and uh, work your way down. For homework for two weeks from now, um, the only thing I want you to do in your workbook is page 75, which is the application questions. Um, instead, I want you to focus on this, uh, the packet I gave you, page eight of the using cross-references packet has uh, the homework exercise, which is looking up the cross-references and working those out for Philippians 2, 9 to 11. We're going to talk about that when we get together next time. It's super awesome, and I'm excited to talk to you guys about that. Uh, dig deeper. you got two chapters. Memorize one verse from Philippians. Uh, you don't have to read the Bible memory hands out, handouts, but do if you have spare time, which I know all of you are just swimming in. Uh, and I think that's all for tonight. I should give my family more eyes rather than putting all this stuff together. This is too much. It wouldn't be any fun if I couldn't give you guys more. All right. Thanks, everybody. Two weeks. So the 24th. Don't come back next week. I'm not coming. Yeah. If you're, if you're in the making a personal study, then do come back. But if you're not, don't because I'm not going to be here.